Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Strange and Beautiful Book Club Deep Cuts. Dune edition. <laughs> and we're going to be covering part three of the first book. Part three, The Prophet. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. All right, so we've talked about part one at length, part two at length, and then we have part three. Part two is actually the shortest word count page-wise, and part three is like the second longest. But it definitely is um, where most of the action happens. Yeah. So we introduced all of the pieces on the board. We figured out how they can move on the board. We set up the rules of the game. And then in part two, we really positioned all of our pieces got everything prepared to move and then in part three we're finally playing the game that's and where everything all the shit goes down yeah all the shit goes down and we have a time jump we have a time jump between part two and the beginning of part three and they make that very clear on the first page of yeah. part three uh the baron is talking to his head security guy nafood nafood yeah and <clears throat> He says, how long have you been my guard, Captain Nafood? Because he... Um, <laughs> he appointed him he right appointed after. Him, yeah, right at... Um, when the Duke killed all of those, his other trusted companions. Yeah, at the end of part one. Right? Anyway. Yeah, yeah, during part one. And then Nafood says, since Arrakis, my lord, almost two years. Yep, so there you go. Okay, we jumped ahead two years. It's been almost two years. And that day dawned. When Arrakis lay at the hub of the universe with the wheel poised to spin. Hey, that's from one of the chapter titles. Um, from Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. So this is like, okay, shit's about to go down. It's been two years, which means Paul, or Muad'Dib, has had two years of um, laying the groundwork for his... Um, Grand Blitzkrieg smackdown. Building his mythology. Yeah. Uh, accidentally, mostly. Accidentally, yeah. <laughs> um, I love when we meet, when we're talking to him and he's like, everything I do becomes part of my legend. Why am I so fucking good at this? <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Basically, yeah. Because he's like, even this is going to become part of my legend. Because they defeat some Sardaukar. He doesn't even have any part in it. He's like, oh, by tonight, there's gonna everyone's going to think Muad'Dib killed like eight Sardaukar yeah, on his own. Yeah, he said, I didn't even draw my knife. And I didn't even draw my and knife. And the legend God will say it. that I killed yeah. 20 Sardaukar myself. And right. there were only like 12 to begin with. Right. Um, we pick up in part three with the Baron. And we had some Baron in the second part, but not a ton. So this is our first like big Baron section in well, a while. We had a big info dump from the Baron to Raban. Yeah, and we had the Count Fenrig meeting and stuff. Yeah. But um, this is mostly him being like, ugh, shit's not gotten better for me. 
I really thought that this whole Arrakis snafu thing was going to really elevate my position in the court. It was going to finally lift me out of the, we only accept you because you're as rich as us, but we don't really like you position. Right. And uh, it didn't. It didn't. Because it didn't turn out the way he wanted it to. And so at this point, he's on Gidi Prime. Raban is running Arrakis. Running Arrakis into the ground intentionally. And uh, Fade is trying to kill him. Yep. So we yeah. get we get the Baron summoning Nafud and Fade. Yeah. And like, dude, come on. Seriously. Are you really trying to kill me right now? Do you have any fucking idea how useful I am to you? Like, leaving aside the fact that I'm the Baron and you don't know how to do this job. But do you know what I am doing for you? Do you have any concept? I'm arranging my legacy for you. Right. And I don't even have to die to give it to you. I'm perfectly willing to retire when the time is right. So I can just hang out over here and be a pedophile while you run Arrakis and like keep my dish full. Like, seriously, would you just calm down and stop trying to kill me? Oh, um, but I can't let this go unanswered. So what I'm going to need you to do is go down to the slave quarters and kill every single woman there with your own hands. Cool. Yep, and Nafud, you're gonna get three people and go get the slave master, and like bring me his head. Yeah, because Fade tried to sneak a poison needle in, which Fade tried to play the long game. Yeah, in two in years a ago, boy's thigh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, which I love uh, how the Baron's like, I detected it all by myself. I'm the smartest man in the room. And it was definitely good two. thing. Good thing Tufer told me about Yeah, it's definitely two for being like, hey, just a heads up. Fade's trying to kill you. Oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it, then Fade realizes that Thufur is playing him and the Baron against each other. Yeah. Because Thufur helped Fade arrange the plan in the fighting pit to put Fade's slave master in place so that after everything settled down, Fade could use this slave master to get a uh, an assassination attempt against the Baron. Yes. Yeah. That was likely to succeed. Right. And so he waited two years to actually execute that plan. Right. And the Baron is like, I respect that you tried. I really do. I appreciate the initiative. I, I appreciate the ambition and the initiative. I really do. But, like, just fucking quit trying to kill, kill me, okay? And this is kind of jarring because we've spent so much time with the Fremen and the f nobility of the Fremen and the... Um, straightforwardness. The straightforwardness and the, like, dignity, I guess, or the just the open-handed way that all of the Fremen deal with each other, that this is a pleasant or unpleasant reminder that the people who actually rule the universe are some petty ass motherfuckers. And yeah, here we go. Just a, they try to kill each other. They all have to check their food for poison all the time. Cause they're just literally constantly you can't trying to trust us. anybody. You can't trust anybody. And we also get a reminder that Tufer works for the Harkonnens now, and he still works for the Harkonnens. So we get a lot accomplished in this tiny little section with the Baron. And he still believes that Jessica was the traitor. Right. Against the Duke. Right. That's why he's still working for him, because it's yeah. the opportunity to maybe strike back. So then after the Baron finishes scolding Fade, yeah. then he goes and talks to Tufer, And he's kind of like, 
I don't know why this isn't working out. Like there's so much animosity still against me from Shaddam. Like why I did him a favor by doing the whole thing with Arrakis and taking out the Duke and, um, and so they kind of I talk thought about we were going to be bros. They kind of talk about the Sardaukar and yeah. the Baron uh, says some things in passing that Thufir's like, hold up, what? Yeah, wait, the what the fuck? What what about Seleucus Secundus and? Oh yeah, I had a conversation with Count Fenring hmm. uh, back at back at that big slave pit fight. Yeah, you remember uh, a couple years ago. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I, I said some things about Seleucus Secundus and um, and Arrakis and whatever. And Thufir's like, where's the recording? Oh, I didn't record it. I I can remember it. I don't need to record it's my fine. conversations. It's fine. He's like, I need to know exactly what you told Count Fenring. Because Count Fenring is the right hand of the emperor. Yeah. He's like, oh, well, I, I told him... Uh, I was going to, like, copy what he did with Seleucus Secundus and turn Arrakis into a prison planet. And Thufir's like, you fucking what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a reason nobody knows where the Sardukar come from and why he doesn't let anybody inspect Seleucus Secundus. They're the same reason. He's like, no, no, the, the... Sardukar recruited, uh, you know. They're like the best of the best situation. Yeah. I don't know. And he's yeah. like, no, if, if you want a fiercely loyal force, first, you just drop them on a, into a hostile environment, and then you pick off the survivors, the best of the people who are so tough that they can just survive in this harsh environment, and then you put them through the best military training and lavish them with prestige and fame and yeah you give them a mansion whatever and then they become very proud of what they are and they're very loyal to you they become what you might call mm, radicalized and arrakis is harsher than seleucus secundus yeah and there's already a large population of you know radicalized people living in that harsh environment. Right. And he's like, yeah, but there's only like a couple thousand Fremen. And Thufir's like, hold on, let's review the numbers. Yeah, let's take a look <laughs> at the numbers. Uh, how many, here's how many Fremen that were killed in the last two years since you, yeah, since your hostile takeover of Arrakis from the Duke. Yeah. It's like, 600 here, 1,500 there, a couple thousand here, and the Sardukar said they killed, like, 3,000. Yeah. Okay, but the Sardukar lost, like, 30,000. <laughs> um, and, okay, here's the information that, that Piter was trying to... Or no, um, who was trying to tell the Baron uh, in... In the first section, somebody was trying to tell the Baron that there were a bun- there were a lot more Fremen, and the Baron was like, "No, no, no! Don't even tell me about that. That's just bullshit. Mm-hmm. I don't care about the Fremen. They're just some rabble that lives out in the desert." But now the Baron's listening. He's like, 
if you like Duncan Idaho said there were this many people in one siege. Yeah. And imagine you have this many sieges. We have at least five million and up to ten million Fremen on Arrakis. So the like few thousand that you've killed over the last couple of years doesn't even cut into their like population growth rate numbers. Yeah. It's it's a rounding error yeah. on their population yeah. chart. Yeah. You have done fuck all. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the emperor knows how many Fremen there are. And when you say, oh, I'm going to turn Arrakis into a prison planet in emulation of Seleucus Secundus, that's like you implied, I know what Seleucus Secundus is. And I'm going to do the same thing as you I'm do with Seleucus Secundus. Yeah. And I'm going to create my own like elite private army that is better, better than, than the Sardaukar. Yeah. And now you're a threat to the emperor. And the baron's like, well, shit. Yeah. You remember how you told the, the emperor that the one, one of the few things that keeps him in power, which is the fear of his elite fighting force? Yeah. Um, you told him you were going to one-up him on that. You, yeah. Remember how you through, did that? Through this whole culture of doublespeak and yeah. deception, you basically told him straight up that you were raising an army to take out the starter car. Yeah. Um, that's why things aren't working out well for you. Yeah. Okay, but we can make this work. You are going to cut off Raban. Raban is making this a prison planet for you, right? He's preparing it to be this hostile environment. Um, you're going to cut him off. Yep. And then you're kind of maybe wait until somebody kills him or you go in and and execute okay, right. the him. The problem either solves itself or you solve yeah. the problem. And then you send in somebody else to take over and he will be merciful and beneficent and he'll be saving the planet from Raban. And then you abandon all precepts of turning Arrakis into a prison planet. Yep. And then maybe the emperor will be nice to you again. Right. And the... And the Baron's kind of like, well, that was kind of my plan anyway. But I was, I guess I don't I'll think he was intending to completely cut off Raban. No, he wasn't. But yeah. he was always planning to replace Raban with Fade. Yeah. To make Fade the the savior of Arrakis. Right. And so, so there are plans kind of aligned anyway. Yeah. Uh, so the Baron's like, okay, great. All right, fine. And then we cut to Paul. Muad'Dib. Muad'Dib. Yeah. Uh, he's coming out of some deep meditation. And he's... Well, he ate dinner. And dinner had so much spice in it, it sent him on like a spice trip. And oh, he's it like, was just heavily spiced Yeah, food. and he's like, okay, hang on. Okay, what is actually happening? <laughs> Did I do that? Did I do that yet? Is that the past? Is that the future? Is that now? Um, he is untethered in time. Yeah, he says he wondered if it might be possible that his rough spirit had slipped over somehow into the world where the Fremen believed he had his true existence, into the Alam al-Mithal, 
the world of similitudes, that metaphysical realm where all physical limitations were removed, and he knew fear at the thought of such a place, because removal of all limitations meant removal of all points of reference. In the yeah. landscape of a myth, he could not orient himself and say, I am here because I am here. And so he's trying to, like, locate himself. Things, yeah. He's, like, perceiving things, and he's like, wait, is this in the world where things actually happen? Yeah. Or is this in my, you know, like, future sense? Right. I'm just feeling out. He's trying to figure out the brackets. Okay, so yeah. what is the last thing that actually happened? And what is the next thing immediately in time that hasn't happened yet? I am in between these two things. And that's the only way I'm going to find myself. And so he's narrowing down yeah. what timeline am I actually in. And conveniently giving us some exposition about what his life is like right now. He's like, oh, I sent my children, my child and Chani away to the deep south to for their protection. Did I do that? Am I going to do that? Have I already done that? I don't know which. And my mother's down there with Alia, who was born. And something's happening with Alia. Has that happened already? I don't really know. So we're getting like, he has a kid with Johnny. His mother had her baby and her baby's name is Alia. St. Alia of the knife. What a brilliant character Alia is. I mm -hmm. mean, she gets short shrift, honestly, in the later books, but we'll get there. But in this book, the, the one scene where we get a ton of her is just one of my just chef's kiss favorite scenes. But <coughs> I think that's the purpose of first the scene with the Baron and then immediately after that, the scene where Paul is like, okay, let me talk about some of the stuff that's been happening. Let me catch you guys up. I've been training people. I've been training that my mother's been training people. I've been teaching them tactics. I've been teaching them fighting skills. There's a whole new like group in the Fremen called the Fedaikin. Yeah. That are his like, personal his, guard. His personal guard. Yeah. His like elite fighters of the Fremen weirding way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and then we finally kind of get grounded. Okay, now Paul's actually here. Yeah. And we're moving forward. Right. And what he's faced with is he's been with the Fremen long enough. At this point, there are certain things that are expected of him that he has to do. But as a Fremen warrior. As a Fremen warrior. But once he crosses that threshold, there are certain implications that he's not quite ready to face. So he needs to ride the worm because they use the worms like taxis. They call one. They yep. hop on it. They ride Uber. it. They, yeah, they Uber, Uber a worm. Of the sand. And then they drive it until it runs out of gas. And then they let it go. And then they call another, and then they drive that one till it runs out of gas. And so they refer to distances as how many thumpers, like how many worms are you going to have to call? That's a 20 thumper trip. That's a whatever. And he can't go to certain sieges because you can't make it there on foot. You have to go by worm. And since he can't ride a worm, he has by to himself. be by himself. He has to be carried. He has no autonomy. Right. And so it effectively makes him a child in their culture. But not having done this has gotten him out of the obligation to prove his leadership. Right. Because he has so much more prestige than anybody else. Once he is a full warrior, if there's a full warrior in a siege that has more prestige than the current leader, you got to call him out you and take over leadership. Yep. And... 
he doesn't want to do that. No. So he's been putting this off. He's been procrastinating doing yeah. side quests instead of Yeah, he's the been main doing story. side quests exactly cuz the main story is like, hmm, there's there's options in the main story and he's not sure yet how to choose the one he wants to choose. And so, but ultimately he can't avoid it any longer. And so he does. He Today's calls a worm. The day. And of course he calls the and of course he calls a heckin' chonker of a worm. Like the a biggest big, worm anybody's a, ever seen. A big fucking worm. And then they're like, it is the legend. <laughs> He's like, God <laughs> damn it. I didn't do it on purpose. And then he rides the worm. And as they're on this worm and everybody gets up, he has this double speak conversation with Stilgar, which Stilgar is one of the few people who uses this language that Paul associates with leadership, which is this like, I'm telling you something, but I'm saying something else. And he's basically like, you did a good job, kind of. Like, here's a couple things you messed up on. But I'm going to bring you down a notch. Yeah. Just so you don't get too you know, big yeah. in the head. And Stilgar, he's like, Stilgar, um, I'm not going to call you out. And he's like, well, we'll talk about that yeah. later. Yeah. You, you, you kind of got to. And he's like, okay, well, we're riding a worm right now. This isn't the moment for this conversation. And so he ends up, there's a thopter. They see someone and they can't let anyone know they ride these worms because part of the Fremen mystique mystique is no one knows how they move around Arrakis so freely. And so I love how they explain that they like hop off. They let the worm go. It's too tired to bug to bug them anymore. Anyway, it's going to go sulk. They say it's yeah. going to go sulk. And then they like throw themselves against the side of a dune and allow sand to go over them. And that's how they hide themselves. But it turns out this Thopter is a smuggler, not the Harkonnen. And they have an agreement with the smugglers that they won't come this far south. The Fremen, as it turns out, bribe the shit out of everybody. They bribe the Spacing Guild to not pay attention. They bribe the Spacing Guild to not put a weather satellite or an observational satellite around Arrakis so that no one will see what they're up to and no one will guess how many of them there actually are. Or notice that they're planting yeah, that or they, notice that they're terraforming sections. the planet, and they also bribe the smugglers to not come this far south. A, a lot of it's just threatening the smugglers, too. Yeah. Like, they, if you come here, we will kill you. They bribe them with, like, we won't openly murder you if yeah. you don't come this far south. And so this is um, this is not done. This this smuggler has come to the a place they don't go. The smuggler made a mistake. Yeah, and so Paul's like... Well, it's time to make an example. Let's but this lure smuggler in. group, it's not just one thopter. Right. They have a, like a crawler, a spice Carry harvester. All, they have everything they need to harvest spice. They and just so, have one of everything. Right. And so the this Fremen group creates a false patch of spice to lure them yeah, in. Yeah, they have just pouches of like raw spice. Yeah. Yeah. And so it turns out that guess who's the leader of this rebel group, of this uh, smuggler group? Gurney. It's Gurney Man. <laughs> Mood is for cattle and love play, young pup. So it's Gurney. And Paul is like, oh, it's Gurney. Yeah, slaughter all of his men. Yeah, this is, this is, <laughs> well, they shoot down all the, like the carry all and the thopters and all that stuff and with rockets. Yeah. Because they can't have these guys escaping now that they've seen, um, I guess now that they've been here. Yeah. Because they might have seen stuff. And then so he's like, tell your men to stop. And so Gurney's like, okay, everybody, yeah, stop fighting. Uh, yeah, this is this is my friend. 
And he's like, yeah, sure, after he murdered half of our yeah. men. Uh, these dudes were good dudes, so... Uh, so then they take all the smugglers in. There's like, I, oh, yeah, there's a cave over here. We were thinking about stopping there over for the night anyway. So uh, they bring all the smugglers there, and Gurney gives some of the, the old Atreides hand signal to Paul, and he's like, oh, there's men here that we can't trust. And yeah. so he susses out, okay, there's... They're probably, probably Sardaukar. Sardaukar. Yeah, because the Sardaukar are um, a little bit, uh, I don't know, can we still say butthurt? They're a little <laughs> bit butthurt about the oh, fact. They're, they're a lot of bit butthurt. About the fact that the um, the Fremen. Fremen kicked their their asses. because and they, they So they mention a pogrom, like yeah. a genocide. Yeah. The Sardaukar want to commit a genocide of the Fremen. Right, because they're like, listen, our stock and trade, the thing that makes us who we are, is that we are the single baddest fighting force in the entire universe. And there's this planet where these yokels know how to kill us, and they wiped they wiped like us five out. to one, ten yeah. to one losses. Yeah, and now that they've had time to train, it's likely worse than that. Yeah, this was before they'd learned the weirding way. Right. Like, literally, we need to wipe them all out. They are a threat. And so they have been working hard. They have been, like, lobbying to be able to go, just go to Arrakis in force. As a quote-unquote training exercise. And wipe them all out. And so they have been gathering information, infiltrating groups to try to find enough information to prove to everybody that the Fremen are a threat and need to be eliminated. And so they have snuck onto Gurney's force, onto and, Gurney's smuggling. And kind group. of influenced their decisions and convinced everybody to go farther south. Right. Across the line. Yeah. In hopes that they would... They're poking get, at the Fremen. Yeah. They're like, okay, now do something. Okay, now, now do something. Yeah. And... Um, the, this is an interesting exchange between Paul and Gurney because Paul's like, dang, I wish we could have saved some of the equipment. And Gurney's like, you know, there were men on that equipment. Your right? father would have been more Your father would have been men. more. And he's like, well, my father's dead. So. How'd that work out for how'd him? How'd that work out for him, Gurney? And Gurney's like, oh, shit, this is not the same boy from two years ago. Which, fair, it's not. And I think that Paul is in the moment focused on. He's focused on long-term gains. Yes, these men were important. No, he didn't want to have to lose them. But does losing them further his his mission of saving more people? And yes. as a contrast to when the Duke, like show like sacrificed the equipment in favor of saving the men, uh, th those were men that the Duke was actually in charge of right. and responsible for. Whereas in this situation, Paul technically it still is paying allegiance to Stilgar. Yeah. So he, these men that he killed, not only are they not like part of the main infrastructure of Arrakis, like technically Paul is the rightful Duke of Arrakis. And if it's like the Harkonnen's fleet of um, spice harvesting equipment then that's technically his yeah so it would be you know worthwhile for him to kind of preserve just that labor force right 
But these people aren't even part of that. These right. are smugglers. Right. And he's, they've crossed a line. Yeah, this is a war, and Paul knows it. And in a war, um, you there's no room for um, the kind of sympathies that his father was able to have. His father wasn't actively participating in a war. He was in an right. underhanded coup situation, which he kind of saw coming. But he was hoping that appearing generous towards human life over equipment would gain him the loyalty of the people on Arrakis. Paul already has the loyalty of the people on Arrakis. They pretty much think he's Jesus. So he could die right now and they would continue the war without him. So he just needs to keep being good at what he does. And that's it. And it's not like he's heartless or careless. It's more like he's practical, extremely right. They only practical. took out the flying stuff. Yeah. Because that's the stuff that could potentially get away and leak information. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he was, he was precise. He wasn't reckless with yeah. his destruction and... Right. So then they go to this cave and they right because there's a storm coming. Yeah. And Gurney's like, "There's no storm," and he's like, "There's a storm. Just trust me. Trust me. There's a storm." And so they like walk over to a dune, brush it off a little bit, and there's a door, and they're like, "Go in the cave. Let's go." And he's like, "Shit, I didn't even know there was one there. (laughs) God damn it, these guys are good." And so they head in there to take shelter from the storm, and he has a conversation with Gurney, and um, I think he's a little bit. Happy to see him. Of course he's happy to see him. Gurney was his friend. But there's this new awkwardness where they've both gone through a lot since since the last time they saw right. each they've other. They've both grown, but they've kind of grown apart rather than growing right. together. And in the middle of all of this, some of Gurney's men attack the Fedaikin because they are Sardaukar. And he ends up keeping several of them alive to use as messengers. Yes. Yeah. They get some information out of them, and and then they use them later. Yeah, and then they use. They're like, okay, we'll keep them because we'll, we'll need them later. Yeah. Just add them to the resource list. Not a problem. <laughs> and then we kind of have our like, okay, so that was a interesting diversion, but like, um, are you going to call out Stilgar or what? It's time for you to become leader of the siege. And he's like, do you really think I'm thinking small enough? That I want to stop at being leader of this this particular siege. He's like, no, 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 no. Which I love his solution to this, which is the same solution Stilgar offered to Jessica, which is let's make a lateral move. Instead of overcoming me, let's step aside and become something different. It's similar to the offer that the Baron gives to Fade, which is like, you don't have to destroy me. I will let you have this. You can keep it. I'm going to become something different. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, during Paul's, um, I guess right before Paul rides the worm. Yeah. Uh, we have a little interlude with Jessica that gives us some background on what's happening with Alia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. And they're all together at the Southern Siege. Right. And there's been some drama. Right. Well, because... Alia is like a prescient two-year-old. They say she looks like a four-year-old. Yeah. So, but she's like less than two years old because Jessica was just barely pregnant with her. Right. So she'd be like a year and a few months 
since she was born. Yeah. But they say she looks like a four-year-old. Okay, yeah. cool. That that makes it a little bit better. A little bit. But everybody's <laughs> like really weirded out, like yeah. creeped out, like in a bad way because she knows things that she shouldn't know. Right. Because she has the entire lineage memory of the Reverend Mothers. Right. She's pre-born. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like a four-year-old that can carry on a conversation in and, like a four-year-old baby voice. And recognizes, oh, this baby that was just born looks like a baby that was born on Bella to Goose. Yeah. Which was like a thousand years ago. Right. And they're like, what? why would she know that? How could she know that? And Jessica's <laughs> like, so creepy. we've covered this. But I do like how Paul, because Paul inherited Jameis's wife. Hera. Hera. And Hera, he is, was never interested in having Hera in a wifely capacity, which right. he told her straight up. He was like, "You're, I'm sure you're a nice lady. I've got Chani. I'm not really interested in like keeping a couple women on the side. Um, you can work for me. I'll take care of you. I'll love your sons as my own. But like. Right. She's she's kind of feeling out. Could, you know, could I potentially, you know, get with Paul yeah. and be his like primary partner? Um, or is he going to cast me out, you know, after the year is up? Um, but he and he eventually picks up on like her intentions, her, what she's worried about. Right. And he's like, hold up. <clears throat> as long as I'm alive, you'll be taken care of. Yeah. You'll be part of my family. Right. I'm not going to be with you, but you'll – I'll provide for you. Right. And I'll provide for your children. I do like that part because she's like, why not? I'm still young. And he's like, mm, you know what, Hera? This, I'm all like due 15 respect, right now. I'm just not – like I don't like you that way. And she's like, okay, maybe I'm not that young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she's become like Alia's nursemaid. And she does love Alia. She yeah. loves Alia like she loves yeah, her own children. Just like everybody else, uh, Paul has earned her loyalty. Yeah. And and she's become a member of the family group. Yeah. And she's the one who kind of comes up with the plan for how they're going to get Alia accepted. Because right now she's creeping everybody the fuck out. And it's a tenuous situation because the Fremen don't like to be freaked out by something. Right. And so she's like, so why she's, don't we just go ahead and... She puts together a PR campaign. Yeah, she's like, why don't we just go ahead and tell everybody what happened? Like, tell them what she is and what she knows. But because Alia says, like, basically says, I'm a reverend mother. Yeah. And Hera's like, oh, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah. She's like, let's just go ahead and lead it, lead with that. Let's, yeah, because let's... isn't this an improvement? Yeah. Alia's like... This tribe has two reverend mothers. Uh, Shazam. Let's fold her into the myth of her brother. Right. Let's just, let the cake's already baking. Let's just use her for frosting. Like, it's already happening. Let's just lean into this. And Jessica's like, you make a compelling argument. Let's do that. And Alia is sorted. So Alia ends up becoming as much of a mystical figure as her brother does. But one of the first things that Paul does once he can ride the worm is he transports everybody to the southern siege. So, he, oh, or does he bring his mother to him? 
I don't think he ever actually goes to the Southern Siege. He, he brings doesn't. His, he brings because his they go to, to the him. cave and then they have. Uh, okay, so let's see the stuff with Jessica and Alia and Hera. They're yeah. like, okay, we're going to resolve this creepy tension stuff right now. Um, and and let's go start doing that. And then we cut to Paul, and that's when Paul actually rides the worm. Right. And he's he's like, okay, Stilgar says. You're you're in charge. You get to choose where we go. Yeah. You know, you're driving this thing. And Paul's like, we're going on the 20 thumper ride to see my wife and child. Yeah. And my mother. Because I haven't seen them for a while. Right. And I miss them. And he's like, ah, Stilgar's kind of like, ah, that's, that's kind of far. And he's like, you told me I got to choose the destination. Yeah. Let's Anywhere I want to go, yeah. we're going. So... But after one ride, they get interrupted, find Gurney, right. end up in the cave, and then everybody's like, all right, Paul, you successfully rode the worm. You are now officially a full Fremen warrior. So kill Stilgar. Call him out. Go do it. Do it. Do it. Kill Stilgar. And even Stilgar's like, call me out. He's like, I won't fight you. I'll just let you do it. I'm not even going to try to win. And Paul's like, do you guys honestly think I'm that stupid? Do you serious? And this is something that has been happening. We talk about how Chani killed a man for him because he couldn't fight all of the challengers that came to try and challenge him. And so knowing that he wasn't even going to dignify them with an actual fight reduced the number of challengers that came to try to kill him. So this is something that everyone has been expecting for a while. And he's like, let me ask you a question. Let me pose you a question. Before you go into battle, would you cut off your right hand and leave it bleeding on the floor? And Stilgar's like, well, well, no. And he's like, don't you think this is the same thing? You are the leader of this tribe. You are a good leader. What am I going to do? Am I going to find every siege on the planet Arrakis, call out their leaders and kill them? Am I going to literally cut the head off of every siege and then expect to go into battle and be successful? You're being ridiculous. So here's another parallel to the Wheel of Time because he ends up becoming the Chief of Chiefs. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm skimming the book. Um, we don't really have to go in order. I mean, we can just talk about stuff that's... Oh, but uh, on, on this scene in particular, uh, when... I thought I had it highlighted. And his mom is here? Okay. So they're they're like, okay, you gotta call out Stilgar. And Paul's like, uh, no. He's like, well, we don't recognize leadership without the challenge and all that. Uh, do you smash your knife before a battle? And then he's yeah. like, I have some information that hasn't been revealed yet. And he's like, bring me the message. And they're like, Oh, yeah, that message. Yeah, that message that we intercepted on the way to Raban and basically says Raban's being cut off. Yeah. And he's like, so then Paul's like, okay, we're not going to the Southern Siege now. His mother must have stayed behind because then there's a scene with Gurney and Jessica. Well, she right comes after, this. after he decides he's not going to go down there and, she, and oh, Jessica that's right. finds out Gurney is there. She comes to see Gurney. Yeah. Okay, so he's like, uh, cancel the, the trip 
we're canceling the Uber to the Southern Siege. Yeah. We're going back to Siege Tabor and we're going to plan the takedown of Raban. Yeah. So then Jessica comes up and we cut back. We cut to like a couple weeks later when Jessica arrives. Right. And, and Jessica says something like, hold on, I have it highlighted. Or maybe that's later. Cancel that. Um, <laughs> Cancel that. Well, she's there to see Gurney. And Paul's like, oh, my gosh, you're going to be so excited. I found Gurney. We're going to all be reunited. This is going to be so nice. And then Gurney's like, oh, yes, I finally get to kill the traitor. You fellow witch. Yeah. And he just lunges in and yeah. grabs her. Right. And the only reason he doesn't kill her immediately is because he wants Paul to know that she was the traitor yeah, before he, he kills her. He wants her to admit to Paul yeah. what she did. Yeah. And Paul's like, okay, I hear what you're saying, Gurney, and I know why you believe that, but let me give you the lowdown. She was never the traitor. It was all part of an elaborate ploy. We were going to reveal it. My dad died before we could. I have all. I have Yui's letter. It's, it's back at the other seat. I could get it any time. Where he tells everybody that he was the traitor. So, sorry, but you got it wrong. And Gurney's like, well, shit. And then I think Paul uses the voice and Jessica notes like, wow, he's rural good. Yeah. At using the voice now. Right. Like this is the true voice or something like that. Yeah. And he's, he says the thing in a way that makes Gurney believe it to be true. Yeah. And so then Gurney's like, ah, <laughs> and he opens up his shirt. <laughs> Just stab me now. <laughs> Paul's like, why is everybody trying to get me to kill them? I don't want to kill you. I'm happy you're here. Like, this sucks. I'm really sorry that this happened. This is not great, but like, I'm not going to kill you. And then pri and then they all sit down and he's like, well, let's have some coffee. But first I need to, um, I need to go do a thing. <laughs> and internally he says, no line of the future he had ever seen carried that moment of peril from Gurney Halleck. Yeah. The future, the gray cloud future with its feeling that the entire universe rolled toward a boiling nexus hung around him from hung around him like a phantom world. I must see it, he thought. Yeah, he's like, it's time to take the next step. And that which, next step Which is another parallel to uh, Wheel of Time, because to become the Chief of Chiefs, <laughs> Rand has to go through the trials again. <laughs> and so, so Paul is like, I am going to go through the Reverend Mother process. Yeah. Because he's, he's kind of developed all of his abilities over the last couple years. Yeah. But he's plateaued. But it's not enough. Right. He's plateaued. He's plateaued. It's, it's still not clear he's still kind of seeing the future through a fog right and that's because he's only using half of his like internal awareness right because he hasn't like fully turned on the the feminine, feminine side, side right um from that the Bene Gesserit use and so he's like all right i have to like do the same thing as the reverend mothers do yep to awaken my you know inner awareness fully right but he doesn't follow Chani's advice from um, from Jessica's Reverend Mother ceremony because Jessica's just going to take a tiny little bit of the water yeah. of life. And Chani's like, no, 
know, a little bit of death is worse than the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, apparently he only took like one little drop. That's because he had to be better. He had to be like, (laughs) okay, okay. So my mom could change a whole mouthful, but apparently less is worse. So I got to go as small as possible because I have to one up. Three weeks later. Yeah. And he's been uh, effectively dead. Jessica, Jessica's back again. Yeah. Because I guess she'd gone. She doesn't go anywhere. She just calls Chani to the southern seat. Oh, Chani shows up. Yeah, That's Chani right. shows up because she's yeah. like, Chani, honestly, I have tried absolutely everything I can think of. And it's been I, 20 days or something. And yeah, he's I'm, in a death-like coma. Right. And I'm they, trying they, they want to bury them, him. Like, I'm trying to tell them that he's like on a vision quest and shit, but it's starting <laughs> the, to wear a little thin. Yeah, and they're the, starting to get want me to give him his water and shit. Like, I, help me out here because... He's not dead, but I mean, he's pretty close to dead. And Chani's like, okay, yeah, I know exactly what we need. She just sniffs him and she's like, oh. I see what he did there. I see what he did there. Bring me some more water of life. So she gives him more water of life and he immediately wakes up. And he's like, oh, hey, I know what we have to do. And he's like, oh my God, you guys, you won't believe where I was. And he's like, Chani, wait, how did you, how'd you get here? What You're supposed to be in the South. I've only been out for like an hour. Yeah, I blinked and you were here. And she's like, um, honey, it's been like three it's weeks. It's been weeks. Yeah. And he's like, oh, well. You, you went on quite a bender. Yeah. You guys ready? Because here we fucking go. The emperor's here. The emperor has brought like 10 legions of Sardaukar. Every single house is massed in the space above us because the spacing guild lowered the fees so much that literally every house could afford because to move against the us. the spacing guild, like... The way that Paul sees the future in the through like the masculine inner sight, yeah, is the same kind of way that the the guild navigators see the future, right? But Paul's better at it, obviously, right? Uh, but they they've still obviously. kind of sussed out like there is like there are future timelines that just end in blackness, yeah. Arrakis has become the pivot upon which the wheel spins. So the guild is like, uh, shit's about to go down on Arrakis, and we need to secure our 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 supply. Yeah. So they drop the rates for troop transport, and they're like, hey, everybody, discount rates for <laughs> troops to Arrakis. Yeah. Now ship two ships for the price of one. <laughs> it's a BOGO sale. And so... At like every house has a fleet to go get a piece of the pie. Yeah. While Arrakis is in turmoil, and the guild has kind of cultivated this, and this has all happened in the few weeks since Paul just said, "Oh yeah, make me a cup of coffee. I'll be right back." Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so he's like, "All right, it's time. They're here. This is exactly what we wanted to have happen. It's time to. It's time to make it so. So." He's like, okay, first of all, he who can destroy a thing controls the thing, which I'm almost positive the Baron Harkonnen says in the first no, section. No, um, Paul says it to Gurney in the cave. Right, but it's said before in the book. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's the Baron Harkonnen who says it because he's talking about destroying the house of Atreides. And so this Baron, but 
of course, Paul Muad'Dib, now Duke Paul Muad'Dib, because that's how he got out of the hole. He's like, Stilgar, listen, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to challenge you. This is not a thing. We don't need to whip our dicks out. Nobody needs to measure anything. You got a big dick. I got a big dick. Everybody knows it. And here's how I'm going to show you. I put my ducal ring on, and I'm going to tell you, I am not the leader of your siege. I am the I, leader of the entire fucking planet. I would not stoop so low as to take over just the leadership of one siege. Right. And if I'm being the duke of the entire fucking planet and you still want me to call out Stilgar, am I going to have to call out and kill every leader of every siege on the planet before yeah. you follow me? Yeah. No, because that's... That's my most valuable resource. Right. Would I cut off my right arm before a fight? Yeah, and leave it no. bleeding on the ground? Do you think I'm that stupid? To resolve, I guess, the the conflict with their traditions and everything. He's like, I'm not just Muad'Dib here. Yeah. I'm Paul Muad'Dib. I'm Paul Muad'Dib. I'm Duke Paul Muad'Dib. Yeah. So, yeah, just like Liette had to sets of responsibilities and that was recognized as okay by the Fremen. I'm a Fremen, but I'm also something else. I'm the Duke of this entire planet. Yeah. So chill. So chill. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to need you guys to get some water of life and I want you to plant it over a pre-spice mass. Just put it there. Yeah. Just leave just, it. Just stay just, ready. Just be ready for my signal. And they're like, Paul, the fuck? That that will kill all the worms on Arrakis. That will cause a chain reaction that will destroy Create the worms. the water of death. Yeah. And he's like, yep. Yep. I know. And I'm going to use that as leverage because they know it too. Because they can tell that I'm actually ready to do this. Yeah. Because I don't care. I'll stay on the planet. Whatever. I'll I'll be time blind. It'll probably be a relief. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fine. We'll be fine. <laughs> and we can still uh you know terraform the planet. Yeah. And I don't care if we can't travel. That means nobody can come to us. So win win, honestly. And they're like, uh oh, yeah, you make a compelling argument. Yeah. And so then we skip to his all right, here we go. It's time right. to take down the we're Emperor. Wa we're watching the wall. Yeah. And he's telling Gurney, All right, you got the detonator. Uh, be ready this? to go on my signal. And Gurney's like, but uh, you're using the atomics. Like, isn't that going to bring down the wrath? And he's like, uh-uh-uh. Read the fine print. <laughs> yeah. Use of atomics against humans is forbidden by the convention. And we're using it, we're using it against a wall. It's fine. And he's like, well, that's... that's yeah. Uh, mm, okay. And he's like, whatever. but the Baron is mine. And Paul's like, no, Gurney. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry Gurney. It's not. And Gurney's like, you promised that they killed my sister. And he's like, okay, well, they killed my dad. They killed all of my friends. They They've tried to kill me. I've been, you know, out in the wild with the Fremen for two years. Yeah. And at this point, they killed my son. Because they, right before we, I guess, let's see. They set off the bomb. Yeah. And... That works. And then he's telling them, don't use laser guns to clear the rubble. There might be shields. They're, oh, they're being careful. It's, it's like, fine. wow, this is like the most reckless thing the Fremen have done. But yeah. 
whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the the guy on the radio is like, wait, we're getting a signal. Um, and there's some garbled stuff about the Siege Tabor. And he's like, my son is dead. Yeah. And Ali is a hostage. Uh, kind of. Is Ali a hostage? Uh, Are they a hostage of Ali? Apparently, Alia killed a bunch of them <laughs> and then let herself get captured. She's like, I wanted to like get captured so, so I could meet you guys. Yeah. Hi. This little four-year-old. Yeah. I I love Alia. But I like how Alia leaves him messages because he searches forward into the future to kind of see what's going to happen. And Alia has literally, like talked to him in the future she's like haha i left you some notes you can't even do this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like whoa how'd you do that and he's basically she's basically like yeah they captured me but it's cool i got this i, I got i got plans don't worry about me and yeah, paul's and like we, we right. have a little scene where where we basically just clarify that the emperor has come down yeah the baron has come down and some guildsmen and yeah, but everybody else Sardaukar. is waiting in space. Yeah, and uh, earlier Jessica was like, "Why aren't they? Why aren't they all coming down?" And he's like, "Well, the guild's protecting us." What do you mean? Why would the guild protect us? Yeah. Well, because well, one, they can see all the timelines end in darkness, but um, yeah, they're stopping everybody coming from coming down because anybody who comes down before they give permission is going to be stranded. They're yeah. not going to have permission to get back on the Highliner right. to get home. So, okay. So then we, Duke and his, uh, um, yeah, Paul and his cadre go to the the mansion, whatever, the um, that Raban was using. Oh, yeah. And I think at this point the- they've killed Raban. Oh, yeah, Raban is, like, killed off page. They're just like, yeah. oh, yeah, and I'm getting word now that Raban's dead. It's fine. And they knock down the shield wall. They let the this giant great-great-grandmother of a storm in, and it ends up shorting out all of the shields. And as soon as the shields are shorted out, they they literally shoot the nose off of all of the ships. So they can't fly. So nobody can leave the planet. Everybody's stuck. Nobody has shields. And then they just walk into Arakeen. And walk into the palace. Mm. Oh, yes. They walk into the palace. And then we cut to the emperor. I love. His... Like I was going to skip this scene. Because this is the part where <laughs> Ali is like, make him afraid some more, Shaddam. <laughs> I like that part. <laughs> yeah, and he's the... like, stop talking. And she's like, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> and, and, and the baron is like, ah, ha, ha, we're winning. And and then their nose, uh, the nose of their ship gets shot off in the yeah. middle of this. Uh, and he's like, yeah, but we got... You know, we got Alia and the emperor is like, you don't understand. I sent like a shitload of Sardaukar yeah. in there <laughs> and like three of them got out and their ship was only to is able to escape because they pointed their thrusters at the tunnel that the Fremen were coming out of. <laughs> And burned them. (laughs) (laughs) They fled in terror. And this is the only hostage we managed to get. And it is a four-year-old child. And the entire siege was populated by women women and children children and and old people. people. Yeah. And Ali is like, oh, and I should note that I'm only your captive because I let you capture me. Yeah. And they're like, shut up, child. And then she sits on the edge of his, like, throne dais and her little feet are dangling. And she's, yeah. Like, just given the whole vibe that Alia has, yeah, is like a 
perfect spice in this scene. Right. Because she's like, because uh, the Baron is trying to trying to frame this like, I have this all under control. I knew it was going to happen. It's totally fine. And the Emperor's like, just stop talking. Right. The, the Emperor who, at this point, he still thinks that the that the baron threatened him yeah by saying i'm going to turn arrakis into a prison planet right and the like embarrassing defeat of his sardukar just reinforces that like oh you're already doing it yeah you already have a fighting force like Women and children and the elderly that can defeat my starter car right. handily. Yeah. You're farther along in this plot than I thought. Yeah. And, oh, your fake, uh, your fake feud with the Duke. I'm seeing right through that. And the Baron's like, what are you talking about? What I have no you? idea what you're, what is happening yeah. here. He's like, you orchestrated that beautifully because... You know, you're, it's working. Yeah. Like, you are a threat to me. I'm going to take you down. Yeah. And Ali is like, hate to interrupt, but the Baron Harkonnen actually is an idiot, and the feud was real, and he is not aligned with Muad'Dib, because guess who Muad'Dib is? Anybody want to know? Anybody want to know? Because I totally know. Hold on. What's the, uh, what's the last line from Alia? Um. And I always have the scene from the movie in my head for this line. Let's see. The Reverend Mother freaks out. Oh, yeah. She's like, get out of my head. <laughs> and, and Ollie's the- like, I'm not in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and the Emperor is really confused. He's like, telepathy? Like, nobody actually has telepathy. Do you have telepathy? And Ollie's like, no. And the Reverend Mother's like, no, you don't understand. Because, you know, they're, the way their abilities work, the Bene Gesserit have kept secret very well. Right. She's like, kill it, kill it. It's an abomination. And Ali is like, thanks. <laughs> I am. Appreciate it. And so Alia says, my brother comes now. Even an emperor may tremble before Muad'Dib, for he has the strength of righteousness and heaven smiles upon him. <laughs> the room rumbled and shook around them. There came a sudden cascade of sand behind the throne where the hutment was coupled to the emperor's ship. The abrupt flicker tightening of skin pressure told of a wide area shield being activated i told you alia said my brother comes <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody's like oh shit <laughs> doesn't she tell them that she's an atreides she's like can't oh, you she's... see the resemblance haven't you figured it out yet who my brother is i think the baron tries to grab alia and she stabs him. With the Gamjabar. With the Gamjabar. Yeah. And then this is when she reveals the lineage. I'm sorry, grandfather. You've met the Atreides Gamjabar. <laughs> you, you. <laughs> and the emperor's like, these people are insane. <laughs> Quick, get into the ship. We're getting out of here. Yeah. Uh, but that's when the outer shield goes down and all the... Ships get damaged so they can't yeah. fly. And it's like the perfect execution of Paul's Don't they plan. ride worms? They ride the worms in the storm. They ride worms <laughs> all the way up to the hole that they blast in the Emperor's like throne room. Yeah. 
And, and then, then, then he hops off and he's like, thanks, Uber. And he's yeah. like, sup, Empy? <laughs> How's it going? And then things kind of slow down a little bit. Right. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. This this is such a badass there's moment. More, there's some more dialogue and we get the whole thing with Fade and the Count. And they reveal that this is Paul Atreides, that Paul Atreides never died. He is still the Duke and he is back to claim his planet. Actually, the planet's already his. He just needs to them to recognize what he's already done. Yeah. And I love how he just looks over at the guildsmen and he's like, they know what's up. Ask them. And they're like, uh, uh, yeah, we need to, uh, 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 you know, this is a delicate matter. And he's like, yeah, it's a fucking delicate matter. I'm about to destroy all of Spice on Arrakis. How about them apples? And this is why the guildsmen are like, actually, maybe we should just let Paul have the planet. I mean, what? Yeah, let's just, it's let's fine. not stir things I mean, up too is much. It a, it's not that big of a the catch. The Baron's dead. We'll just, we'll just let Paul right. take it over, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that he, he, they go to the palace in Arakeen and that's where he has the emperor come to him. Yes. And he's, you know, he says, I am a member of the Lansrod. The typical things apply. You'll I'm be going safe to invoke here. all of my legal rights and you need to follow through on all the policies right. and Plus, procedures. You'll be safe and here. Forms. Like, I'm not going to harm you. If oh, I've yeah. officially invited you, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you like right now. Yeah. He invokes all the hospitality right. obligations. And, and all then, that. then Fade is like, oh, Oh, actually, Tufer is supposed to be the one to kill him at first. But Tufer is like, no way. I'm never going to kill my duke. And he's just like, my duke. And then he dies. And he holds out the needle that he was given yeah. to use against Paul. And Paul knew it was there yeah. because his future sight is so much clearer now. Yeah. And and Tufer's like, see, like, show kind of for the emperor. Yeah. Like, I was never going to kill him. I was just glad to see him one more time yeah. and like get that redemption. Yeah. And then Thufir dies because it's been like a week since he's had his antidote. His antidote. Yeah. Yeah. And we find out that where's Alia? Oh, Alia is out finding the wounded and killing them like any good Fremen child. <laughs> <laughs> like any good Fremen child. <laughs> Just gives us even more depth into the Fremen culture. Yeah, they're all like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then they end up, we get our battle with Fade Ryotha because the Emperor is like, well, I thought everybody was going to be safe. And he's like, they are safe, unless that guy's going to call me out. And Fade's like, right, yeah, so I'll call you out. The Duke Leto invoked Canley. Yeah. When Atreides took over Arrakis. And the Baron was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. You know, following the the proper forms and being all honorable and shit. <laughs> how so? How childish in this you know great house like royal uh, dynamic where everybody's just trying to be selfish and yeah. deceptive. And so, the thing that that the opportunity that that leaves open is for the Baron to or at least house harkonnen to respond yeah to the invocation of canley which happened a couple years ago at this right. point and so fade is like nah i'm the baron now i i call you out and paul's like i got this all right he's actually a little unsure because there's like paths he can't see in this moment and all of them involve count fenrig no, he, none of them. 
Right. He, the ones he can't see. He cannot see Count Fenric. He right. cannot see the things that Count Fenric does. And we he's find like the, a blind spot. They, they explain this after the fight with Fade. Like, after he wins the fight with Fade, that's where most of the timelines are, where he can't see what's happening. Right. He has all these blind spots. And and Count Fenring, he, they have a significant look, and he's kind of like, Sup. Sup. We're good. We're cool. You so do you, I Fade do me. Fade does his We're typical, good. you know, try to cheat, um, and he's very good at cheating. Yeah, and ultimately his treachery is what becomes his downfall, because he has a blade in his belt, or yeah, he has a, like a, a needle. needle. And it gets stuck in the floor. Right. Yeah. And that allows Paul to, to defeat him. For a moment, he almost doesn't. But then he does defeat him. But And Paul kind of plays it on hard mode because yeah. he won't use the command word right, because, that his mom told him about. Yeah, everybody has like an implanted command word that you're unlikely to say in like normal conversations, like a nonsense word that gives you a moment of hesitation. Which they used, Fade used the command word against the, the Atreides Guy, gladiator guy gladiator guy yeah. um and yeah he so it's a it's a thing that's done right uh but the bene Gesserit prepare very important people secretly yeah so probably when countess fenring fenring, uh, fenring yeah. seduced fade she probably conditioned him or it may have happened before that. Well, anyway. it's kind of like the missionary protectiva, where they kind of they do it just as like a backup as plan, as early as possible. As early as possible, okay. everybody has one, and it's pretty much always this word. So it's a good shot if you say this word, it's yep. gonna work. And Paul's like, "Nah, I don't need it. I won't say it." He's like, he says out loud, which is probably kind of confusing to fade. Yeah, he's like, "I won't use the word." Okay, yeah. Paul. And then Paul uses the voice forget who he uses the voice on but he's like i want everybody to know i'm so fucking good at the voice now i could literally tell you to die and you would do it yeah and so we get this line so uh the reverend after the fight with fade paul starts you know doing his thing yeah and the reverend mother's like what's going on uh you mustn't speak of these things jessica what have you done <laughs> and Paul's like, uh, you saw part of what the race needs, but how poorly you saw it. <laughs> you think to control human breeding and intermix a select few according to your master plan. How little you understand. And she interrupts him and he says, silence. And he basically uses the voice against her. Yeah. Which is impressive She's in a that reverend mother. Because yeah. she is a reverend mother. Right. And she has been a reverend mother for decades. A long, long time. So he's like, I remember your Gam Jabbar. You remember mine. I can kill you with a word. And then we get the the internal monologue of the Fremen in the room to it is the like legend. Re reference it, the legend. <laughs> the legend. And his word shall carry death eternal to those who stand against righteousness. I love how he is constantly, accidentally fulfilling the prophecy. Right. He's just doing it how he wants to do it. Yeah. Rather than, like, 
I've read a lot of fantasy books where there's some kind of prophecy and, and they really spend a lot of time. Like the main character has to be like educated on the prophecy and it's usually some kind of riddle where the riddle doesn't even make sense until like they get into the throne room with the king and the king reveals some information about this secret plan they've been doing and that's the clue that they need to solve the riddle and now they know oh here's what i need to do to fulfill the prophecy right which it kind of works it allows like these large-scale plots to happen in a way that you couldn't have anticipated what it was beforehand and just arranged for the prophecy to be fulfilled. Right. Um, and, you know, completely avoid all of the climactic plot development, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it feels, you can tell, and it feels a little cheap. Yeah. But it, it generally works. Yeah, it's fine. It's a done thing. Right. But here we have a lot of reversal of those, like, epic fantasy tropes where... Paul's just doing his thing. He's he doesn't have like clear objectives of prophecy that he needs to fulfill. He's just like I actually see the future possibilities. I'm doing what I can do to arrange things just to get through each yeah. each of these nexus points. And every time he gets through it, somebody's like the prophecy. <laughs> it is the prophecy. <laughs> He's like, oh, I did it again. <laughs> yeah. Oopsies. But yeah, he ends up he ends up um, not really overthrowing the emperor per se, but maneuvering himself into a position where he is untouchable. He's like, yeah. I don't want your universe. You can keep it. I mean, I'm, I'm going to come for it. Let's just be honest. But at this moment in time, my ambition is simply to take this planet back for the people who live on it. So I want you gone. I want your people gone. I want everyone gone out of my space. He looks over at the guildsman. He's like, right fucking now. Or I, I torpedo your spice production. And I'm going to marry your daughter because that's going to put me in a position to inherit your throne. I'm going to be untouchable because I'm your heir. And Irulan's like, well, that's fine. And the Emperor's like, no, you fucking won't. Yeah, and, and Irulan's like, take a minute, Dad. Come on. You see sense here. He's offering you a way out of this that you can yeah, save and I, face. I think what really does it is Irulan's like, I'm okay with this. Yeah. And f- to save your pride, here is a man worthy to be your son. Yeah. And the Emperor's kind of like, oh, oh, okay. Okay, when you put it like that, yeah, uh, like okay. I'm I'm being intimidated, I'm being bested, I'm being like handily muni- manipulated yeah. in this moment. This guy standing in front of me is an embarrassment. Yeah. And she flips it around. It's like, "No, it's not embarrassing for you to be bested by someone that you respect." Yeah. As being like better than you and how do you tell the universe that how do you tell the universe you respect him you let him marry your daughter and it's like oh like people recognize that yes he you know 
he has power over you. And you say, that's because he's my successor. Yeah. And that's why he's going to be my successor. And so now we have all this kind of psych- very, very um, elegant, like psychological development right. where everything works out in a way that's believable for all of these characters that have been developed. Right. Yes. Including the princess Irulan, who we haven't met in person yet, but we- we've seen her throughout the entire book because she's the one writing the chapter headers. Right. We we know her voice at this point. Yeah. And you get a sense of how she feels about Muad'Dib. Yeah. And she really respects Muad'Dib, Paul Muad'Dib, and loves Paul Muad'Dib and views him in like a very positive regard. Yeah. Um in a a not like super sentimental way, but and in a respectful. Good, good thing way. not a sentimental way, because uh, she ain't getting. None she of that. ain't getting none of that. And so, this is the first time he's announced his intentions to marry Irulan. Right. And Jessica's like, oh. N- <sighs> She's like, I know how your entire life I've been telling you that Chani is way not good enough for you, but I've changed. I think Chani's the one you should stay with. Well, I think she tells him that earlier well before he makes this pronouncement one of the things i actually didn't like about the book was how much jessica does not warm to chani for a long time because i think jessica sees herself in chani and she's also concerned that paul will fall so deeply in love with chani that he won't consider the idea of a political marriage but as soon as he's she's faced with the reality that her son is about to have a political marriage that the way that she empathizes with Chani becomes, I wish I had married the Duke. I wish we had just married for love. And I want my son to be able to marry for love. I I don't actually want this to happen. Now that I'm faced with the reality of this happening, I I realize how ridiculous this is, how cold this feels. And so I don't want that for Chani because that was my life. I don't want that life for Chani. And Paul is like, mom, I get it. I'm going to marry this woman on paper. But I'm married to Chani. Right. And so he throws this thing out and this generates some tension between him and Chani. Yeah. Him and Jessica and Jessica and Chani. And Chani's like, in a moment, Chani talks to him and she's like, okay, I'll. uh, She's like, I'll step aside. Our son is dead. There's nothing tying us together anymore. And um, I'll, I'll. Back like, off I get it. so you can do this. And yeah. he's like, no, you fucking won't. He's like, you are my Sahaya. Sa- <laughs> <laughs> you are my desert spring. Like, you, I love you. It wasn't about my son. I mean, I loved my son, right. but there and will I've be other sons. I've known this for, like, 10 years. We have lived I've lifetimes together. I've known that we were going to be together. Yeah. You are my soulmate. And I'm not going to give that up just for some... You know, Imperial pretty tart. face <laughs> in a position of power. Yeah. Um, th- I'm never actually going to be with her. She's never going, you know, your children will inherit the empire. Yeah. Not Irulan's children. Right. And I think Jessica throws in at this point, like, yeah, um, there's her reputation is that she's kind of like nerdy. 
Yeah. Uh, so let's hope that she really does like her books. Because it's the only comfort she's going to have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, Jessica, that's it's cold. Like, I think, she, uh, let me let me look up the line. Well, they I, end, they... I think the line is that her books will be the only thing that share her bed. Uh, <laughs> probably. Um, but they end up, he sends Chani and his mother off to go do the negotiations. Yeah. They're like, who's going to negotiate this whole contract? Yeah. And he's like, uh, Chani and my mom. Yeah. Because these are the two most powerful, intelligent, wise people in my life. Yeah. I trust them. I'm literally trusting them with my legacy. With the future of the empire. He's like, I want controlling stock in Chone Company. I want Arrakis free and clear. Um, the rest of it, you guys figure that out. And then we get the last line of the book about how history will consider them wives. Wait, wait, before that, um, like at this moment when the emperor is like, well, crap, this is all going uh, wonky. Uh, he and Count Fenrig have, share a look. And the emperor hisses, do it. I could kill him, Fenring thought. And he knew this for a truth. Something in his own secretive depths stayed the count then. And he glimpsed briefly, inadequately, the advantage he held over Paul. A way of hiding from the youth. A furtiveness of person and motives that no eye could penetrate. Paul, aware of some of this from the way the time nexus boiled understood at last why he had never seen Fenring along the webs of prescience. Fenring was one of the might-have-beens, and almost Kwisatz Haderach. Crippled by a flaw in the genetic pattern, a eunuch, his talent concentrated into furtiveness and inner seclusion, a deep compassion for the Count flowed through Paul, the first sense of brotherhood he'd ever experienced. <laughs> Fenring, reading Paul's emotion, said, Majesty, I must refuse. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, not that's only... the moment where he's like, "We bros." Right. They do yeah. like a, like an eyebrow, the yeah. the, the bro eyebrow. We, we the, good. We good. We cool. We cool. We cool. Right. Yeah. And then the very last line, the probably the one you were looking for is, "See that princess standing there, so haughty and confident. They say she has pretensions of a literary nature." Let us hope she finds solace in such things. She'll have little else. A bitter laugh escaped Jessica. Think on it, Chani. That princess will have the name, yet she'll live as less than a concubine, never to know a moment of tenderness from the man to whom she's bound. While we, Chani, we who carry the name of concubine, history will call us wives. Mic drop. Done! That's it. That's the end of the book. Uh... And this has spawned numerous film adaptations, attempted film adaptations, TV adaptations. I had to laugh because I bought the like a newer copy of the book. Mm -hmm. And on the cover, it says, now a major motion picture. When? Which one? Which one? This book was published in, let me check and see. This is one with the new cover, so it must be pretty recent. Yeah, this copy is from 2010. Oh, 2010? Yeah. Well, it says Ace Premium Edition 2010. So, but at the same time, like, guys, when has it not been a major motion picture? Since 1984, you could right. put this on the cover. 
Right. It, we the know. book was out for 19 years when the 1984 movie came out because it was published in 1965. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who are you? Well, they're trying to make it uh, att more attractive to people who may have never heard of Dune or have only ever heard of it and never watched any of the movies or read the books or whatever. Um, I saw something the other day about... This does not compute. I can't remember a time when I didn't know that Dune existed, so I'm sorry. I kind of blanked for a minute there. It was like, what? What do you mean people don't know Dune exists? Here's from the afterword that Brian wrote. He says, When my father and I became close in my adulthood and we began to write together, he spoke to me often of the importance of detail, of density of writing. A student, a student, student, a student of psychology, he understood the subconscious and liked to say that Dune could be read on any of several layers that were nested beneath the adventure story of a messiah on a desert planet. Ecology is the most obvious layer, but alongside these are politics, religion, philosophy, history, human evolution, and even poetry. Dune is a marvelous tapestry of words, sounds, and images. Sometimes he wrote passages in poetry first, which he expanded and converted to prose, forming sentences that included elements of the original poem. Dad told me you could follow any of the novel's layer as you read it, and then start the book all over again, focusing on an entirely different layer. At the end of the book, he intentionally left loose ends and said he did this to send the readers spinning out of the story with bits and pieces of it still clinging to them so that they would want to go back and read it again. I think that's accurate. It kind of reminds me of the density of Martha Wells' murder bot in that way. That you don't have to fully understand the politics if you don't want to. You can just follow the adventure story. Right, because it's it's written mostly as a like psychological yeah. story. And a mythological story. And mythological stories um, are timeless. Right. Um, uh, the one guy I listened to says that mythological stories are stories about the perennial problems. Yeah. Which are the problems that humanity like human nature will always have. And so anybody at any point in history could read this story, could experience this story, like in any form, right? In any media. Um, and it would have significance. Yes. Because it's about the kinds of problems that people face and the way that you solve and face those problems that are applicable in any situation. Why can't I find this? What are you looking for? I When I was looking at... Uh, I was looking something up Dune-wise the other day, and um, I saw a link for a book, and it was... It was like a history of Dune... That was published in like 2022 or 2023. The Art of Dune, Dune Companion. Let's see if it's in here. I read the synopsis of the book and it seemed like they were doing the same thing that we are doing, which is reviewing the entirety of Dune at a high level Ooh. in anticipation 
of the, the movie, movie coming out in November. Yeah. So I think it just came out like a few months ago. And I thought, oh, that would be. Did you a dream good about thing it? To th- <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> Let's see, short stories, novels, books. What is the Sands of Dune? Oh, that's novellas from the world of Dune. Is it the strange and surprising history of Dune? When did it come out? Okay, I found it. All right. <clears throat> so I was... Not a dream. I was just Googling about Dune stuff. Yes, Dune stuff. It, apparently it was yesterday. Oh, okay. So I just looked through my browser history. And Fine. I thought, oh, here's... You were untethered in the now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The time uh, nexus. The reason I couldn't find it searching for it was it doesn't come out till September. Oh, okay. So they're definitely hitting on the right before movie hype. Good on them. Um, but here's here's parts of the uh, synopsis of the book. Okay. Geek culture expert Ryan Britt takes us behind the pages and scenes of the science fiction phenomenon dune charting the series life from cult sci-fi novels to some of the most visionary movies of all time brit skillfully and entertainingly guides readers through the history of how the dune universe has unfolded including the novel's unlikely evolution from a failed piece of journalism about oregon sand dunes into an epic science fiction story Ooh, that'd be interesting the way herbert's work inspired george lucas Untold stories from the 1984 David Lynch film. The knife-edge balance between blockbuster hit and indie film Timothy Chalamet brings... Let's see. The knife-edge balance between blockbuster hit and indie film Timothy Chalamet brings to the 2021 movie and the exciting future of the franchise. Through a blend of narrative, oral history elements, and fascinating trivia, The Spice Must Flow is the new essential guide to the behind-the-scenes story of Dune. And so they have uh, interviews with Timothy Chalamet, Kyle MacLachlan, Dennis Villeneuve, Patrick Stewart, Rebecca Ferguson, Alec Newman, and other people. Hot damn, that sounds like a good book. And also also examines the far-reaching influence of Dune on art, music, politics, and most notably, its status as the first ecological science fiction story specifically concerned with climate change. I have a question. Yeah. Who has George Lucas not found inspiration from? I mean, plagiarized. I mean, found inspiration from. (laughs) Can someone please name me a sci-fi property that isn't like George Lucas found inspiration here? Well, to be fair, for any anybody creating something artistic, your most of your creation is like the accumulation and combination of what you were exposed to and yeah. impressed by. Yes, but when are we all going to talk about how George Lucas lucked into Star Wars? Oh, he absolutely did. Okay. All right. I mean, that's hot take and then i'm done so yeah that sounds like a fabulous guide it should come out right about when we're wrapping up the strange and beautiful book club deep cut dune edition (laughs) and maybe we could cover it on the podcast yeah that'd be good to get we should pre-order it Ooh, i wonder if we could get a sponsorship what no no like have say guys in in exchange we'll review your book 
We're in like exchange huge. for reviewing the book. There's dozens of us. <laughs> you can send us a free copy. Mm. Yeah. We hey, you know what? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Just put I, it that way. <laughs> let's say in a couple months after we have some of these episodes mm. out, we yeah. could uh, contact him and be like, hey. I'll cut this part out because this sounds like collusion. We'll, we'll cut it out. It's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but in exchange, like we can contact him and say, hey, we're doing a whole series on the books and all the film adaptations. Um, and we found your book and um, and we'd like to cover it on the podcast. Could you send us a couple copies? Yeah. And we'll, you know, we'll definitely, we'll be giving you a shout out. Definitely. Basically. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up the book though. And that brings us to the exciting conclusion of the Dune novel. The first novel, the, the groundbreaking tome in the sci-fi genre <laughs> yes. that has yielded so much joy for so many people over so much time. And to think that somebody read this and had the audacity to believe it could be adapted into a movie is impressive to start with and that they just kept fucking doing it is even better because yeah. this is one dense motherfucker. Like Brian says in the afterword, it is layer upon layer upon layer. The book itself is an onion filled with onions. And I guarantee you every single time you read it, you could glean more from it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think this was my fourth time reading it. Yeah. And I picked up stuff. That you didn't pick up the last time. And I think a lot of that was it's been like 10 years since I've read it. So yeah. I've grown as a person. So different things Stand it stood out. out to you. Yeah. 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 And so after this, we're going to start talking about the movie adaptations of the first book. And before we move on to the adaptations, but there's only one person who's had the audacity to try to do anything more than the first book, and that would be sci-fi. Um, we'll talk about the books, the Children of Dune and Dune Messiah, and then we will go on to the sci-fi adaptation, which they termed Children right. of Dune. And... I'm really excited to get to the movie, maybe because I just want to see Kyle MacLachlan, because I already have the theme song stuck in my head. But like, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and so I'm so ready. And so I think we're just going to go do that now. All right. So come back next time to hear about the 1984 Dune, which we'll be doing next. So excited. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.